Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer and I am the vice chair of the Collier Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have an interview with Captain Chris Whitman of Captains for Clean Water. This was done about two months ago that we never got to put out due to all of the news that's happening every single week. So we felt like this would be a good time to get it in. Uh, and it's probably the last opportunity to get it done before the election, as the next six weeks will be entirely focused on the election, the debates, and all of the information coming out from all of the campaign stops. But uh, before we get into that, here's a quick update on things that's going on in the party. Vote-by-mail ballots will be in people's mailbox any day now, and you can finally put pen to paper and vote for Joe Biden for president and remove the danger to America that is Donald Trump. Also, look out in your mailboxes for your Collier County Democratic Party Voter's Guide, which was mailed to all 55,000 Democrats and left-leaning MPAs. That should be in your mailboxes with your ballot uh, when you get it. So check that out. If you've not received those, please check out our website where you can find out all of the candidates and all of our recommendations on the amendments You can find it out at www.collierdems.org. We are in full GOTV mode for the next 39 days of this election. We are calling voters who have requested vote-by-mail ballots and telling them to send them in immediately. We're dropping literature at doors to encourage people to vote. We're sending postcards. We're running radio ads. We're texting. We're waving signs. We're doing a whole bunch of stuff, and we need you to step up. Please Sign up to volunteer at our website, www.callyourdems.org, and click on Volunteer at the top of the home screen. We've got something for everybody. And lastly, we want to take a moment to remember RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We will talk about this more on the next episode of the podcast, but we just want to say that she dedicated her life to the principle of equal rights for all Americans under the law, regardless of gender, race, sexual orientation, etc. She fought for these principles, and we will, we will continue to fight in her honor. Her last words were that her most fervent wish was for her replacement to be made after a new president is installed. She deserved better than this. Rest in peace, RBG. We will be right back with our interview with Captain Chris Whitman. It is an understatement to say that we are currently lacking competent and effective leadership in many areas of government. Am I right? Luckily, the Florida Democratic Party has a Democratic candidate running not only for president, but in every state Senate seat and in every state House seat but one. The Collier County Democratic Party has a volunteer force of dedicated Dems who are working hard to elect Democrats in our fair state and defeat Comrade 45 this November. We've begun a vote-by-mail initiative and we need all the help we can get. With only a short time until November, time is literally of the essence. All of our activities are safe and can be done from home, like writing postcards or making phone calls in a virtual phone bank. We have only one shot at this, so please carve out some time to help us. Go to www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. And click on the Get Involved button. It's time to go to the mattresses and have no regrets come November. Today we have uh, Captain Chris Whitman. He is a co-founder and program director for Captains for Clean Water, a nonprofit group focusing on water quality here in South Florida and Everglades restoration focusing on solutions. Captain Whitman, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and start with go over what is the mission of Captains for Clean Water and how was it founded? Sure. So our organization was founded by fishing guide to throughout uh, our our lifetime in Florida had noticed a continuous decline in the the quality of our water the 
health of our ecosystems and, and fisheries. And uh, in 2016, the water crisis that, that, you know, hit the state that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and, and made a lot of us uh, fishing guides who were, you know, directly connected to those resources wake up and, and look that there wasn't uh, an existing outlet for our voices to be heard. And the more we spoke with, with people around the state, we found out that we weren't the only ones that felt like that. So we set out to try to engage people and bring the, the public, not just fishing guides and fishermen, but the, the communities and people affected by these issues to try to, to get them involved and bring them into the fold for advancing uh, water quality solutions. Um, our primary mission, uh, when we started diving into the stuff, Daniel and I, who are the two founders, both live, uh, born and raised in Fort Myers in Southwest Florida, have fished all over the state. And um, when we started looking into uh, our problems here directly, you know, we first called a bunch of scientists that we know that we've worked with, with fish tagging and fish habitat loss and stuff like that. And the more we dove into it, recognized that, you know, the biggest uh, factor that was impacting our waters here, um, that was leading to the largest amount of degradation was the real high volume discharges from Lake Okeechobee during the, the wet season. We didn't want to just go out and scream from the mountaintops of uh, about problems. We wanted to see what solutions were out there that would have the greatest impact and then advocate for those solutions. And so that, that led us to Everglades restoration or the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan, which is a series of projects. It's actually the largest natural restoration project or suite of projects ever to be undertaken in the world. And it's, it's right here in our backyard. And so we recognize that through Everglades restoration, we weren't going to fix all of the problems, but we could see the greatest impact and the greatest benefit through. We're going to attack the biggest problems first there. And and so that's really what we set out to do. And, and we recognized through that it wasn't just something that would we would see benefit here in Southwest Florida, but we'd see benefit to the Kissimmee River, Lake Okeechobee, uh, Stewart, uh, the Everglades, the interior of the Everglades, Florida Bay, the drinking water supply for 8 million Floridians in South Florida. Um, it really, you know, these projects really have a tremendous amount of benefit, not just in helping our fisheries, but in people's water supply and, and rehydrating, you know, a national or international treasure, uh, Everglades National Park. Right. So you talked about as, as fishing captains going out and, and fishing on the water here locally and all around the state that you were seeing declines. What kind of declines were you seeing on the water every day? Um, it was uh, it was kind of a couple different things. One, the, the most noticeable would be just the amount of species, whether it was, you know, fish or ducks or waterfowl, if we were on our inland lakes we'd seen a, just a decline in how many of those fish we were kind of encountering um, throughout our pursuits and, and also how much more difficult it was becoming. Those fish were being pushed into smaller corridors where they were more susceptible to pressure. And those two things, what we, what we recognized were a result of the decline in the habitat and the stuff that isn't necessarily quite as, as visible. A lot of it's, you know, below the water surface, but, um, you know, we saw massive loss in, uh, aquatic grasses, um, in the Caloosahatchee right here, you know, just in the last 20 years, you know, within my lifetime, we've seen the loss of almost all of the grasses from, the Franklin locks down to the mouth of the Caloosahatchee River, the whole area kind of between downtown Fort Myers and, and Cape Coral and North Fort Myers used to be full of grass and, uh, and, and it basically is, is non-existent. Now we saw massive loss of seagrass beds in Florida Bay at the Southern end of the system. 
as a result of hypersaline conditions because the water wasn't getting there to to balance the salinity down there and saw almost 50,000 acres of seagrass lost in Florida Bay just in 2015. We also saw a massive loss in uh, seagrass over on the East Coast in the Stewart area. Along with that is, is you know, oyster beds. And, and what we recognize is, you know, things like oysters and seagrass, they can sustain some environmental changes um, or salinity imbalances for a few weeks. You know, here uh, in 2016, for example, we were getting massive discharges from Lake Okeechobee uh, where the, the harm threshold is, you know, looked at to be about 2,000 cubic feet per second. And we were seeing discharges upwards of, of over 6,000. So literally three times what those ecosystems can withstand. And we're seeing them not just for weeks on end, but for months, months on end. And so essentially we're taking areas that would be naturally salt water or brackish water. And for extended periods of time, they were being turned into fresh water and, and that killed the grass that killed the oysters. Same thing that happened on the East coast. And then kind of the opposite problem is all that water that we were receiving that was, you know, damaging the East and West coast was water that was desperately needed and historically would have found its way to the Everglades and ultimately Florida Bay. And, and as a result of that water not making its way down there, Florida Bay got too salty and the same issue happened. And we had massive loss of seagrass down there. So you said you spoke to the science and you're talking about the decline in, in the ecosystems with the, the loss of aquatic grasses and the, you know, the pressure put on uh, the different species to move and find other areas where, you know, since the, those grasses were lost, for instance, they're going to go move into areas where they can actually find the habitat that they're used to being in. What did the science say was, were the most important decisions that, that contributed to that type of change? You know, when we first started talking to, to a lot of different scientists, they, one thing that, was, that they all said first was the number one thing that affects wildlife is habitat loss. So the, the biggest um, change, and it was something that as, as you know, fourth and fifth generation Floridians, we already knew about was, you know, back towards the turn of the century, Florida was kind of uh, an untamed wild area. And a lot of our system that was the historic Everglades was looked at as this worthless swampland in its natural state that that could be conquered for you know progress of of mankind in the form of agriculture and development and uh, that set into motion uh, in the early 1900s literally an effort to to drain the river of grass the headwaters of the everglades start south of orlando on uh, a small creek called Shingle Creek, and they make their way down historically through the Kissimmee chain of lakes into Lake Okeechobee, where during the wet season, it would overflow its southern rim and, and feed through sheet flow the river of grass down to the Everglades and southern Everglades and Florida Bay. And there was uh, recognized that all the, the millennia of muck and decomposition and that happens in that kind of wetland type environment could be, if it could be drained, it could be very beneficial for agriculture. And we're talking about a time when, you know, there was risk of, of food crops being able to be grown out West and in the Northern part of the country. And so set into motion an effort to literally drain the river of grass. And, and they did that. They connected Lake Okeechobee to the Clusahatchee River and the St. Lucie River to create relief valves to get rid of the water that would normally flow south. They then dug a series of canals and, and dikes um, throughout the southern part of Lake Okeechobee into the Everglades, which is now the Everglades Agricultural Area or the EAA, to bleed that water off the landscape there and out to sea, out to the east coast and south. And 
those actions uh, took took a long time to do it, and it took many many attempts. There was floods, there was human casualties, um, but ultimately they were successful in taking a a very slow moving natural system and manipulating that landscape to be controlled by man and and basically speed it up and be able to get rid of the water out to sea in order to develop large-scale industrial farming in uh, the south part of Lake Okeechobee and to develop communities and cities both around the lake um, to support the the farming industry and, and on the coast to support the you know the influx of of people starting to come to to Florida in those times. And so as we look at this, what kind of benefit do we see by restoring the Everglades? What does the science say about redirecting that water? And then also, what is your group saying about how we handle that? Great question. So with our water quality as as a result of those actions in the past, it resulted in two problems. One is a conveyance problem, which is the obvious and 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 very large is we're putting water where it didn't naturally go. And that's thrown off the balance of that massive ecosystem. Um, the other is the nutrient load or uh, pollution issue in the water from runoff. They're both uh, very important problems and they're both handled uh, a little differently. But Everglades restoration, what the science shows is we're not going to be able to just, you know, turn back the time, go back in time and eliminate or, or, you know, move these cities that were built or these towns that were built or eliminate agriculture. None of that is is uh, realistic and none of that is, is honestly what we want to see. But what we can do is we can try to, through Everglades Restoration, we can restore the timing and the delivery of the water to more closely mimic what the natural system had created. And in doing so, we can clean the water and we have to clean the water before we do that. So basically the Everglades restoration suite of projects is 68 projects that will reconnect those systems. It will uh, slow the water flow through the Kissimmee River, which a lot of the Kissimmee River restoration floodplain project um, has been completed and, and to slow that water into Lake Okeechobee and where the lake used to be able to kind of expand and contract through wet and dry periods. It was picture like a real shallow saucer. And, you know, so the perimeter of the lake in the dry season would shrink way down and in the wet season it would expand out until it would overflow south. Um, so we, we can no longer do that. You know, we have the Herbert Hoover Dyke, there's towns around there, but that water can be sent through Everglades Restoration. There's a suite of projects where we have storage reservoirs that are uh, meant to mimic the storage capacity that a wetland naturally has um, so that all that water we would get in the wet season naturally would be, would be kind of stored like a giant sponge in the wetland areas south of Okeechobee and could feed down to the southern part of the glades and florida bay during the dry season giving it those buffering abilities that no longer exists so giant large above ground reservoirs can take water in during the wet season hold it and then meter it out to the southern part of the system during the dry season in conjunction with those is to build massive large-scale filter marshes basically shallow water ponds that are miles and miles long and are, are wide. And in those ponds, we have aquatic and subaquatic vegetation that can take up the nutrient pollution that is coming into Lake Okeechobee and the legacy pollution that's already there. Lake Okeechobee has just a tremendous amount of phosphorus and nitrogen from you know previous uh, practices in, in agriculture where they would you know, get their fields would be flooded with fertilizer on them and they'd, they'd just pump that runoff into the lake. And, and that legacy nutrient is still in Lake Okeechobee. So to be able to take Lake Okeechobee's water, put it into uh, reservoirs, run that water through filter marshes to clean it to drinking water standards before sending it south to the Everglades and Florida Bay. And what the science shows is 
those projects can have the greatest benefit for the most amount of people in the most amount of area and the largest amount of habitat. And throughout those 68 projects, um, we can also identify projects and prioritize projects that, that of those 68 will have the greatest benefit from each other. For example, the EAA reservoir that was part of Senate Bill 10 a few years back is, you know, that project is, uh, is modeled to have uh, around a 50% reduction in those harmful discharges to, to our east and west coast. That's a very big number versus looking at, you know, the local basin runoff and what we could do there that, that would have, you know, closer to a, a 10 to 15%. Not saying that, you know, every one of these things aren't important, but it's critical that we're able to take the largest bites first. And if we had all the money in the world available to get stuff done and we could do everything simultaneously, that would be incredible. But the reality of the situation is, uh, funding from the state and federal government is the limiting factor in these projects. And so it's important to try to focus funding and efforts on the on the projects that we're going to see the greatest ROI the soonest and then, um, you know, work our way out from there. And, and if, if we spread that funding thin over a bunch of projects, what happens is everything just stalls and stagnates and takes much, much longer. Right. So what are the most important changes in addition to that? Like what else do we need to do here for South Florida environment and the coastal estuaries and Everglades to, to continue down this path towards a more healthy equilibrium for the great. environment? Yeah, great question. So reconnecting the flow of water is, is in a nutshell what Everglades restoration is intended to do. And part of that is the conveyance from Okeechobee and, and decompartmentalizing what's known as the water conservation areas between the EAA and basically um, Alligator Alley, um, the bridging of Tamiami Trail, that road was acting as a dam. So raising that so we can get water flowing um, under there and, and down through into Florida Bay. But the most important thing is being able to, to get our our legislature, our representatives, to one, understand the importance of uh, moving these projects forward as quickly as possible as an investment in our state's future, not just our way of life, not just the fish and the birds and the wildlife that rely on it, but our economy. Um, you know, we saw the, the hit that our economy took um, during the water crisis of, of 2016 and, and again in 2018. And now with COVID coming on the heels of something like a, you know, a worldwide pandemic, you know, we have to be able to sustain and we, we can't sustain another one of those catastrophes that could be avoided coming off something like this. So, so one, that, that just how critically important um, the environment is to us here in Florida everything from our way of life to our economy to, I mean, our state relies on clean water. Without it, the state will crumble in every aspect. The other is is the just the, the consistent funding and political will, you know, not playing politics with our water and, and horse trading in Tallahassee and DC over projects and money and understanding that although we're getting historic funding for Everglades restoration and water quality issues right now, that's great, but we have to have that reoccurring and actually scaling up year after year after year. That is always the limiting factor. You know, it's, and, and a lot of that is, is a challenge on the federal side. Everglades restoration is a, a cost share partnership between the state and federal government. And a lot of times it's making sure that we know that there's money coming and being allocated for specific projects in order for the agencies involved with constructing those projects or operating them to be able to expedite and, and kind of move that process forward as quickly as possible. It'd be like if you were building a house and you didn't know from, you know, throughout the phases of construction, if you're going to get the next chunk of money to go from building the foundation to building the walls or from building the walls to building the roof, it would take much, much longer. So I think the important thing is really understanding the importance of this to our state 
Um, you know, our policymakers, the thing they understand and focus on is jobs and economy. Well, this is something that affects our jobs and our economy. We saw that um, in 2018, you know, there was people in the hospitality industry that were having to go get groceries from the food bank because they were out of work. The tourists simply left. And so I think the important thing there is everybody who is supposed to be representing us, the people, to recognize the importance and do what's right for the citizens that they represent, put their political horse trading aside, put their party affiliations aside. This is a a nonpartisan, it doesn't matter what party you belong to, this affects you. And so you, you damn well better get it right. And, um, and so I think that's, that's the most important thing that our representatives need to know. And I think that's the most important message that our citizens need to send. Yeah. So I'm going to end on this one question. So why should someone choose to make this issue, clean water, restoration of the water flow south through the Everglades, the one that determines how he, she should vote come on election day? So I would say that water quality is the most impactful and important issue to the state of Florida because of how it affects our economy. We're a very tourism-driven state, how it affects our jobs, also how it affects human health. People have a right to clean drinking water that's not polluted. Everglades restoration will help with water supply to over 8 million Floridians. It's something that if our ecosystems are, are thriving and our waters are clean, everything else thrives behind it. But if our ecosystems are in decline and our waters are polluted and uh, wildlife and habitat is collapsing, it doesn't matter how much money you put into any other issue that you may vote on. It doesn't matter how much money you put into job creation or real estate or energy or schooling or any of these other things. It's not going to be successful if the major foundation of our economy is crumbling. So that's the key. And I think the the important thing for us as citizens to recognize is that the current system works great for a very few, for industrial agriculture south of Lake Okeechobee. And those special interests are without a doubt fighting tooth and nail to keep the system working as it does because it works perfectly for them. They get irrigation water when they want it. They get uh, flood control and drainage when they want it. And it's perfect, but at the cost to the rest of the ecosystem and and the rest of us. And so I think the, the thing for people to recognize is when we're talking to our current representatives or candidates who are bidding for Hort to be our next representative, recognizing that water quality is the most important thing that faces our state, making them take a position and draw a line in the sand and say, this is what I will do um, so that we can hold them accountable. If the public does not do that, then special interests can throw around hundreds of millions of dollars and continue the horse trading and, and stuff that has got us into this problem and delayed progress in the first place. And I think that's where the the public has some power is recognizing, you know, make sure that you don't just go to the ballot box and make uneducated votes. Make sure that you ask every candidate hard questions about water quality. Make sure that they're educated on water quality so they can tell the difference between, you know, scientifically sound permanent solutions and uh, political band-aids that are just made for, for optics. Make sure they can recognize those differences by being educated and then ask those questions to policymakers or, or people who would like to be policymakers and make them take a position that they can then be held accountable for. Awesome. So Captain Whitman, let everyone know where they can find more information about your organization and how they can get involved. Yeah, uh, you can visit our websites the best way. It's uh, captainsforcleanwater.org. There's a lot of uh, great educational information on there, both about our organization and and about our mission. Um, You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, 
Captains for Clean Water and on uh, Instagram, Captains for Clean Water. Awesome. So Captain Whitman, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Amber, I'm really trying to find out more information about our local Democratic Party. Linda, listen, Linda. There are so many ways to find out information, not just on our local Democratic Party, but the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, whenever we can have those again, and local news. There are a ton of ways to hear about them. Do you tell, Amber. Well, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and even follow our new podcast, Call Your Democratic Roundup, which is found wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Or you can just check in on our website for all the local Democratic Party info. Shut up. Uh, yeah, you can find all of these signups and a link to our new podcast on our website at www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Man, well, I'm logging on right now, and I'm sure the party cannot thank everyone enough for their support. All right, so we're here with the panel portion of the podcast. We have Amber and Linda back on as usual, and we are going to keep the theme the same and talk about the environment and all of the awful things that President Trump has done over the last four years. Uh, We'll dive into a little bit of what's going on on the West Coast of the United States and how the president said rather calmly to experts that, it will get colder this week. So, you know, I guess we have all that to look forward to, but how's everything going after last week's catastrophe of news that happened? Wow, the dumpster fire that was last week. Could we say that it was like the biggest dumpster fire? The large dumpster. I mean, half of our country is literally on fire. So I think, yes, you can probably say that. Yeah, I mean, literally and figuratively. Yeah, last week. I think we were all just like deer in headlights last week. It was tough. Definitely. So, Linda, you did some research on uh, some of the things that Donald Trump has done over the last four years. So it's really interesting because last week Trump came to Florida, our fair state, and announced at a press conference, much to the surprise of his own uh, administration and pretty much anybody on the ground here in Florida, that he was going to ban offshore drilling for another 10 years, which he previously was the one who lifted the ban. So that was very interesting. So of course you turn around and I think we're all fairly jaded at the moment. So I think when he comes to a battleground state and says something like that, it is because he is campaigning in a battleground state and he thinks that that's going to win him some type of political favor. So, you know, on the heels of that great interview that you did with the captains for clear water, I just kind of went back from the very beginning to kind of see where he positioned himself as he was, he beginning his race to become president and to what we have now, um, that he has become president and what he's done to the environmental community and the EPA since he took office. And it's pretty stark and grim. So it's, it's completely different from his claims that he is an environmentalist because what we have on the ground is no, he is not in fact an environmentalist. So that may be the understatement. I mean, outside yeah. outside of him being the least racist person ever, I don't know that there is yeah, a, a so more uh, under, understated statement. But continue, it, please. It's so, well, it so is. And it's really important that I feel like what's happening right now is that the media is just not... I mean, the, the, the right loves to say that the media is against them, that especially Trump himself, he loves to say that everything that comes out of the media is liberal and right wing. But when he says these things, the media does not challenge him, nor does it do a good job of elucidating the things that completely contradict the message that he's trying to give the American people right now as he's trying to win this election again. And what was really interesting, though, as I started doing this research was 
I found that in 2009, when he wasn't even on our radar, but in 2009, him and three of his children actually penned a letter to Obama where they said that they, we need to, we'd need to join some type of climate coalition. This is very important and the Trump family stands behind climate change. That is literally a, a letter he sent to the Obama administration. How, did you guys hear about that? Because no. I didn't. And I was very surprised by that. So this just paints a picture of who Trump is. In 2010, he immediately starts debunking. And I mean, I have a series of quotes that are just pretty reprehensible and just shows you where his head's at. Trump claims scientists admitted global warming is a con. That's literally a headline. That's a headline in the New York Times that he says. That's just a sad day for New York Times as well, that they're doing that in 2010. Right, that, that that's clickbait. That that's literally what we want to focus on as a country. But it continues and it gets worse. 2012, global warming was created by and for the Chinese. Another another headline. 2013, global warming is a hoax. 2015, it's a madness to call climate change a number one priority. 2015, the Paris Climate Agreement is ridiculous. I mean, he's had a hard-on for that Paris Climate Agreement since 2015. So as soon as he got into the presidency... Vamoose, it goes. That we will we will talk about later. And then 2015, again, literally another headline. You know what? This stuff is a hoax. I want to use hairspray. That is literally what he says. It just has become apparent that he just has doubled down on the statement. And I think you guys and I talked about this at one point in time at the beginning of our foray into this podcast that as soon as he took office, started scrubbing anything that said climate change off of any government Mm -hmm. website. I know that we were incensed the day that we found out that that was happening. And the list of what he's, he's changed or scrubbed or made sure that the EPA doesn't mention about climate change is fairly staggering. I mean, he doesn't want those words in anything that can be looked up or associated with the government. I mean, and that in, in and of itself should get the most airplay. I mean, we can't even talk about it. You can't even reference it. If you go to the EPA government website, it's almost like climate change isn't even occurring according to the EPA. So let's start talking about some of the things that that he's done. Again, that just, this is not gonna be an exhaustive list. I'm just gonna pick and choose because believe it or not, America, I have four pages of environmental rollbacks that he's done. And for those that potentially want to say, well, you know what? He's done this and he's done that. Yes, I found an example of where he tried to protect the environment, like one time. What and was then, it? So he... I'm just curious. What was no, it? No, I'm going to tell you. He signed a bill protecting acres of public lands. And that was March 12th of 2018. But right after that... He signed an executive order to call for sharp logging, the sharp increase in logging on those very same public lands. I guess maybe he's just protecting the firewood that he eventually wants to (laughs) cut down. I mean, it's mind boggling. And truly, I am jaded enough to believe that this ban of the offshore drilling will immediately be reversed should he win re-election. Oh, absolutely. I have no thought in my mind that he will go through with what he just promised the other day. Well, he also has financial interest being having property here in Florida. So that one I could see, you know, I could see him being an environmentalist when that situation benefits him. So, but are you really an environmentalist if you, if you're doing it for that particular reason? Yeah. I mean, it's no, it's not even worth using that word for, for him. I mean, he's, he, He's a narcissistic egomaniac in the sense that if it's he only cares about the environment if it's within within him. But he has the myopic view of of how environment works, which is, you know, I want my air to be clean, but I'm okay with coal producing power plants somewhere else, or I want my water to be clean when it's near me. But I'm allowing, I'm okay with somebody polluting a stream upstream. He doesn't realize that the environment is everything and everybody. I mean, the world is, it's an ecosystem, the whole thing. So what you do in one part of it affects what happens everywhere else. There is no outside of the environment. 
and and I don't think anyone is pushing him. And I think the issue of it is so front and center to us here as Floridians because we're on the front lines of of rising sea levels. We've we've had a, a person come on and talk about nuisance flooding and how it's affecting coastal areas right now, Miami, here in Naples. I mean, th- these are very real facts to Florida voters. I'm just amazed. I'm amazed still at this at this juncture in his presidency that people can't understand just how two faced he is. I mean, at no point in time did I think his his grandstanding in Florida about offshore drilling was anything more than grandstanding. You can't do all these rollbacks that I'm about to list and then turn around from the other side of your face and say, yep, I'm a great friend to the environment. So what were the what were the issues? Let's let's list them off and get into it. Okay, so there's so many things. Oh my god, it's it was it was shocking. So National Geographic has a great website that lists um, by date the things that the Trump administration has done since he took office, and they also list any of the positives that he's done for the environment. But again, as I said, any positive you find, you will find two negatives associated with it. So it wasn't a pure positive. Like for instance, he made a big deal in April of 2017, that he donated the first quarter of his salary to the national parks, right? But on that same day, he's cutting the Department of Interior's budget by $1.5 billion. God. So he's going to donate $78,000, but he's cutting their budget by $1.5 billion. So you tell me, how exactly is that going to help? So... All right, let's go over a couple of things that he's done. So October 2017, he scraps the Clean Air Plan. Adios, vamos. August of 2017, he disbands the Climate Advisory Panel. August 10th, 2017, it is found that the EPA enforcement numbers are the lowest in the past 10 years. So everything he's doing is just basically cutting the knees off of the EPA. And enforcement is the way that you punish those that are doing harm to our environment with that with them being kneecapped like that people are just gonna go rampant and do the things that they want to do um in 2017 he has the noaa organization noaa cancel rules that protect whales from fishing nets i like whales i found that a bit revolting august 2017 he revokes the accounting for flood standards as we know Sea level rising, that is the, flo- the flooding in coastal areas and cities like Houston, who sees record floodings anytime a storm happens. Those are all tied to climate change and super important. Let's see, um, April 28th, he orders to expand offshore drilling. Um, April 13th of 2017, it was particularly alarming because he had installed Pruitt into the EPA who, you know, was a coal lobbyist, you know, he wasn't mm-hmm. exactly a friend to the environment yeah. before he had this position. And Pruitt announces a back to basics agenda for the EPA. So back to basics, we are to assume is we're going to roll back any type of regulation. We're going to support the coal industry. That's actually what was in his, his missive was, you know, we're going to, we're going to work with these industries so that they can continue making money and try and help their environment, which my friends are, you know, mutually exclusive. Okay. You just, you can't protect them and protect the environment too. So he's living in La La Land. Oh, and May of 2018, the White House cuts NASA's climate monitoring program. October 4th of 2018. First, he approves the offshore oil drilling in the Arctic. Uh, October 11th of 2018, the EPA disbands the Air Pollution Review Panel. On September 18th of 2018, he repeals the Obama-era methane rules. 2018, he plans to nullify the federal rules uh, on coal power plants. They can do whatever the heck they want. In 2018, uh, Trump announces a plan to weaken Obama-era fuel economy rules. Um, 2018, he officially proposes to roll back the Endangered Species Act. You know, I guess apparently we have enough of those animals around. We can just loosen up those restrictions. In January 2018, the EPA loosens regulations on toxic air pollutions. Uh, I mean, guys, I can, I can just, I can just keep on going. 
really yeah, it's, it's just it as with everything with this president, it seems like there's so much that you just get overwhelmed and there's so much of it going on that when you put it up in list form, it's just a startling amount of progress, progress, hard won progress that American voters have advocated for over the last 60 years, cleaner air, cleaner water, healthier environment, and to see it all just washed away and to watch Republicans just say, yeah, we're fine with it. You know, anything for the almighty dollar. Amber, I'm curious what your take is on it, because you've been the most ardent environmentalist of us all, really. What's your uh, oh, take well, on I'm it? I'm just silently crying over here after <laughs> that. <laughs> Everything. You know, because you hear, like you're saying, you, you know, over the years, you hear, oh, you rolled back this, you rolled back this, you canceled this. And it's like, hear one thing one month and one thing next month, and it all kind of amongst especially just the insane amount of crazy news that has come out over the last three years, it gets lost. And it's so sad, the hard work that people have done. And just the fact that, like, you know, we're already behind in this race to try and beat climate change and to take us even back further. I know. And truly, the people that he's instilled in office, I mean, Don't from Pruitt me going, yes. to Andrew Wheeler as an EPA administrator who came on in immediately and on the heels of his entering office, he undid the Obama era regulation on emissions from coal, power plants and auto, you know, and dismissed a scientific review panel that advised the EPA on air pollution regulation. So... I mean, anyone in, in the current EPA right now wants to hear nothing no. about climate change. Absolutely nothing. And not to mention the USA's departure from the Paris Climate Agreement, which in essence was a coalition of all of these governments being led by us because we are the largest country. We are the one with the most power. We're the ones who are going to set the stage for other countries to do the things that they need to do. And for him leaving that pretty much leaves the world adrift as far as climate change. We are the even more only staggering. country, the only country that is not in the Paris climate change. Syria is in, as Joe Biden puts it, as Obama puts it, as every president Republican and Democrat has put it over the last hundred years, the United States is the one indispensable nation when it comes to global movements. We are the one country that can move the global community in a direction if we want to, partly because we have the single largest economy. That's a big stick that we can hold over everybody, but partly because we have always stood up for equal rights, for civil rights, for human rights, for fair and effective government. We've been the nation that has been willing to go to bat on all of those issues all over, over the world. And as a result, we're able to affect change in that way. So yes, to your point, us removing ourselves from the Paris Climate Agreement, we've removed one of the driving forces. If Joe Biden is elected president and we make the decision to lead, actually lead, environmental regulations and environmental progress to have green new deals and to lead it in solar and renewable energy production and to create those jobs. And we say, that is what we're going to do. Then the rest of the world will follow because we can make that happen because we're such a large force in the global community. But as with everything with this president, he has completely abdicated his responsibility. I mean, he's abdicated his responsibility as president to his own citizens. He did nothing with COVID. He's absent when it comes to race relations. He claims that the reason for the California, Oregon, and Washington wildfires is because they didn't rake the forest floors enough. Mind you that only 3% of the parks in California are owned by the state of, of California. 58% are owned by the federal government, which means the federal government, Donald Trump, is responsible for those particular parks. So, to, you know, he has abdicated his responsibility across the board, and climate change is one of the most glaring examples. You know, when you list off in succession all of the 
scientific panels, scientific review boards that he dismissed or disbanded, the regulations he rolled back. He just doesn't trust science across the board. It, there is no set of facts or science, which just, quite frankly, there should be no other more compelling reason to not elect Donald Trump president than the fact that he does not believe in science legitimately. That is not hyperbole on my part. That is legitimately. He does not believe that there is anything science can teach us, which is crazy. I'll say today, um, Scientific American sent out a post and they said, Scientific American has never endorsed a presidential candidate in our 175-year history until now. The 2020 election is literally a matter of life and death. We urge you to vote for health, science, and Joe Biden for president. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I saw that today and I I wanted to bring it up. That is, yeah, I mean, and the environment is everywhere. So someone who says, who has been voting the way they've been voting for so many years for Republicans, and by the way, one of the most aggravating things uh, about the state of Florida is that it has been controlled by Republicans in the state legislature and the governor's house for 21 years now. And the environment has not gotten better under their stewardship. And so, yes, those of us who have lived here, all three of us have grown up in Florida, which is a rare thing. We all grew up, went through all of our schooling in Florida. We've been here long enough to see what it was like before and what it is now. And when we were all kids going to high school, you did not get category five hurricanes every single year. You would get hurricanes, they'd come through, they'd get to a one, two. If it got to a three, people were like, wow, that, that's a big storm. And now every year we have five tropical waves going on in the, in the Atlantic right now. I mean, we're at Vicky and it's September 15th. Put that in perspective. Three years ago, Irma hit on 9-11. Irma, that's I, we're on V right now. If you continue to vote for people who deny science, just like they denied COVID and they're denying this, they, they refuse to study gun violence. They won't let the CDC study any gun violence because God forbid we know what actually the statistics are with regard to gun violence. When you just basically want to ignore science and the facts, what you end up with is what we're seeing now, which is more and more and more things happening and you don't have any explanation. I mean, Republicans don't find it amazing that there are so many things in today's age that are, in their words, unexplainable, that somehow like, well, we don't know, this just happened. I mean, really, we put a person on the moon, we can geolocate anybody from anywhere on the world, we can translate things in real time through our phones, but then they think that like, the scientists aren't smart enough to be able to tell what's going on in terms of our our climate. Well, let, yeah. let's move it. Let's move into that if we could, because I think that when we say Republican versus Democrat, a non-seasoned person will say, well, you're, you're just beating up on the parties. No, 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 no. Well, it's very important to note that the Republican party does not by party have climate change as a priority like the Democratic Party does. Is it and even, I, think, I mean, it's not even mentioned in their so-called platform, you know, their they don't have a non-existent platform. platform non-existent you know. platform. Well, I think it's important when we try to dissect the Trump environmental policy and how it extrapolates into the larger party platform that we talk about them not necessarily wanting to make the hard decisions because they are hard decisions. They're basically turning around sectors of production and work and jobs in this country and pivoting them to a new thing. And traditionally, as Americans, we don't necessarily like to do new things and new hard things, which is what it would take to change the American mindset and change the American production sector into something that's more green. And so I don't think the Republican Party and and the way that they function want to do those hard things. And they don't necessarily want to tell other people that they want to do those hard things. And oftentimes those decisions are pure and simple based on capitalism. You know, what's going to make what's not going to disrupt the fabric of American society 
and keep people making money. You know what I mean? I get that. But what really pisses me off, and it's similar to how we've talked about with the coronavirus response and how, you know, people that are pro-business just want, you know, want the businesses to open. And they don't realize that if you were actually to put these measures in place to protect people, then businesses could actually open and function and people would feel safe safer anyways going out and using your businesses and it would keep the economy going and it's so short-sighted and it's the same thing with the environment i mean you want to talk about what's going to kill the economy and make our government and businesses lose billions and probably trillions of dollars it's if we have environmental disasters which are coming and if you're not preparing for this and getting getting on top of it rather than responding to some kind of crisis where you have to quickly try to solve something um, and, and also just getting ahead on innovation, we know that we're going to need these things in the future. And it's like use this limited amount of time that we have to get on the forefront and get on innovating and then you have those businesses. So, you know, they talk about just all the economy and it can be both. You can do both. I mean, at some point, if you really want to get into capitalism and, you know, just unlimited growth is, is a problem in general. Um, but just as far as environmental protections, make that a business that is business and you can make that profitable. I mean, I hear you. I see I see the brilliance of the Green New Deal. I see the jobs that it could fund to change the landscape of our country to a more greener landscape, more greener energy, more greener everything. But it's but, going to have to happen. Like, it's inevitable. Uh, I, so I how fully are agree. They not, I mean, are they that delusional that this is, I mean, and I think the answer, unfortunately, is probably yes. But, like, this is a, a huge opportunity to get on yeah, it's, it's Republicans. I don't think that they're naive about what it is that and, and the opportunity. I think that they are Republicans are interested in short term gains politically at the ballot box. And they've ceded the ground to the Democratic Party on environmental issues 100 percent. And voters trust the Democratic Party to deal with the environment. They do not trust the Republican Party to deal with it. So for them to come out and say, yes, we agree with them is not a winning issue politically for them. It does not move anything for them. And so, again, I, I am to the point now with, with the Republican Party that everything they do is purely political. That, that is their decision-making. I'm not saying Republican voters. Republican politicians do not do things that are in the best interest of the country. They simply do not. They do things that are in the best interest of them politically, in the moment. That's it. I mean, the, the most charitable example with D Donald Trump and before the Woodward tapes was that he was just incompetent and he didn't get it. And that's why he slow walked the virus. That was the most charitable way that you could do it. And then we have him on tape saying, no, I knew exactly what it was and I chose to downplay it because he thought it would hurt him politically. Well, let's maybe we should slightly transition to some sort of more positive pro environmental approach that we could have going forward. And of course, in our two candidates for president, that's obviously going to be in Joe Biden. And we've talked about before when we listed some of the issues discussed in Joe Biden's platform, and he has quite a robust environmental platform that he's put forward. Um, it was one of his kind of four pillars of the things that he's campaigning about. And he enlisted a bunch of progressives and Green New Deal ideas. And Joe Biden gave a major campaign speech about the environment and what we need to do going forward. He talked a little bit about Trump's record and just how terrible he was for the environment and how he was believing in science and some of the proposals that he put forth. I mean, you know, compare that with the Trump talking this week about how it's going to, like Jeff said earlier, going to get colder and talking about fires, you know, raking floors and things exploding and just complete and utter nonsense. 
And then you have the alternative who is actually given thoughtful answers about where we can go forward. So, I mean, if it's something that you care about, if the environment is anything that you care about, whether it is the waters here in Florida or just our air or our, our children's futures, you, you cannot vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, no, you can't, you can't vote for Donald Trump and you can't vote for any other Republican. You know, and maybe and that, even stronger say is that it's not enough to not vote for Donald Trump. You must vote for Joe Biden if you want any yes. any hope of rectifying some of the atrocities that have happened over the last And you need to years. vote for your state representative. Yes. Because yeah. here in the state of Florida, we had Obama for eight years, but we had Rick Scott for this for six of those eight years, and it didn't really work out too well. For us here in Collier County, everyone here remembers we had a year of red tide. And as all of us been Floridians for our entire life, I don't ever remember getting a year of red tide. Never. No. That was the worst it's ever been. And the Republican Party's symbol should be changed from an elephant to a frog in a boiling pot of water. They are literally ignoring <laughs> everything. And they act like nothing's going on. And they're going to boil themselves until they die. Everyone needs to get out and vote for everyone down the ticket that are Democrats because they're the only ones that consistently act on behalf of the environment. And the environment affects everything. And everyone likes to say demographics is destiny when it comes to politics. The environment is destiny right now because it is the most existential threat that we face as a society, as a animal, as yeah. a species, species, this is it. And we're seeing the effects of climate change every single year in stronger storms, more extreme weather, more extreme temperatures, mass extinction events of, of animals. You know, one of the articles that has come out here recently uh, this week was talking about climate migration, that one of the big effects of climate change will be the migration mm -hmm. of human beings away from areas affected by climate change. So away from the coast, inland, uh, to try to avoid, you know, the, the worse effects of it. And we're also and seeing record-breaking droughts in Africa. Our friends in Africa are suffering, and that, that's a whole subset of people that, that don't have food. I mean, people aren't really taking into account what a mass migration would look like due to climate change. And that's starting in some areas. I mean, people can't grow their food right now in Africa due to record drought. There's going to come a time when there won't be availability for them to keep living in that situation. And they're going to need to go somewhere. Yes, absolutely. Mass migration. One million uh, Syrian refugees moved into the European Union. And we saw what kind of difficulties that caused in their society, both in infrastructure and in um, just relations amongst humans. Imagine if, if you have to move millions of millions of people due to crop shortages or water shortages or, or rising tides or any of these things. I, I think the problem is, is Hollywood has made it into that there's going to be this kind of, you know, Armageddon type... Event. All yeah, of a sudden, all event. Of a sudden like that, yeah. that is how it's going to happen. And what what is going to happen is you're going to see people slowly move, move, move away from these areas into other areas. And they're going to overwhelm the other areas. And then you're going to have shortages and you're not going to be able to, to feed. The infrastructure isn't going to work. And things are happening. When we talk about it in with the uh, Captains for Clean Waters, one of the things that they bring up all the time is that as fishing captains on the water every single day, that they're seeing grass flats remove, they're seeing species move. I mean, these are guides that have been on the water here locally in Southwest Florida for their entire life, born and raised. And these fisheries have been acting in the same way every single year for as long as they've been alive. And then in the last 10 years, They've seen significant changes in the patterns of fish, the, the 
aquatic environment, whole grass flats being removed, things changed dramatically. And it, it opened their eyes to say, hey, this is something that's changed. And, and these type of changes should not be visible. They should not be noticeable by human beings. We should not be able to, to notice in our lifetime substantial changes to the environment due to changes in, in temperature and changes in, in water flow. That should not be visible to us in our own lifetime. That's a long-term process that should take a long time. And when you do it that quickly, you have huge problems that occur in the environment. That's why you're seeing the Everglades dry up. That's why you're seeing grass flats die because the way we've dammed up Okeechobee and stopped water flowing down through the Everglades uh, is meaning the grass flats in Florida Bay down in by the Keys. There's too much salinity because there's not enough fresh water coming out. So the grass flats die and the grass flats here in Charlotte Harbor, they're up by Pine Island and in the Pine Island Sound. Those are dying because there's too much fresh water from the flushes from Okeechobee because not enough is going down through the Everglades. It's just there's a ton of different issues, but the, 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 the common denominator here is that Republicans do nothing about it. The Republicans overwhelmingly, there's a few notable exceptions. Francis Rooney, who is the Republican congressman here uh, who is stepping down, he's retiring. The one area that he has been consistent and has actually done a, a fairly decent job as a Republican has been on environmental regulation. But I think he, coming from this area, knows that how important it is. It's everything to our economy. And you have to vote for Democrats. You have to vote against Republicans if you can have any semblance of care for the environment. There is just no other alternative. Absolutely. And we're not dumping in the Republican Party. I seriously hope that they wake up and and they understand, you know, what's facing our nation and our people locally and globally in the coming years. I mean, I hope they wake up. I hope that we can potentially say, hey, you know what, this Republican is running in this district. And you know what, he's pro-environment. I would love to say that. I really would. You know, it would be great. But unfortunately, that's not the reality that faces us today. And that's why we have to vote Dem up and down the ticket. That's our show. I want to thank Captain Whitman for joining us. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have 38 days left until Election Day. Volunteer now. Hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, so long. <laughs>